Welcome to the 963 Universal Frequency. I'm your host, Esther Clare, spreading awareness with an open heart, an open mind, living life and being free. I was driving in the Kensington area and passed a light box sign on the side of the road that said, be COVID free and get the three. It has an ironic sound to it. I'd prefer a sign that said, be free with the option of choosing a proven vaccine. But not everybody sees freedom as the right or being able to do, say, think whatever you want without being controlled or limited. Unfortunately, the majority see freedom as I am right and you are wrong. Be like us or be gone, which defeats the purpose that we are all unique individuals. But perhaps that's the point. Canberra has now proven visor for five to 11 year olds, and they still don't know what the long-term effects are. It's in times like these I like to escape and change the scenery. I focus on the wilderness. And in this episode, I will speak with a member of the Kenyana Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre. We will be bringing awareness to caring for Australia's native animals. What to do if you come into contact with a sick, injured or orphan animal. What the scientific research at the facility is all about. And the types of training and education programs that are available amongst other fascinating information. So please stay tuned. I thought I would share how I actually found this wildlife rehabilitation centre. I'm an avid hiker and during the onset of COVID-19 restrictions and border closures, I took the opportunity to explore more of the hiking trails in WA. I hardly trekked here in my home state. It's usually in other countries or in the eastern states of Australia. And one day I was wandering through the Lesmerdi area, finding hiking trails, was in the vicinity of Kenyana Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre and stumbled upon it. I looked into what the centre does, saw that they were taking on admissions for new volunteers and I signed up. Obviously, one of the main reasons why I joined is my love for animals. And that's also one of the reasons why I love walking or sometimes trudging in the wilderness is because of the solitude you can have, not just for self, but having that one-on-one connection to the reality of nature. So it has been a gratifying experience volunteering here at Kenyana. Yeah, so that's how I found the centre. And I just thought, why not do an episode just to spread the awareness that there is a rehabilitation centre here in WA, full of benevolent, knowledgeable people that can help support the community with education and advice when they do find endangered or injured wildlife. And so today, I have the articulate <laughs> and warm-hearted Christine Bazin. Hello, how are you? Hi, thank you. Yes, I'm very well. <laughs> good, good. So I'm extremely grateful that you've decided to do a show with me. I'm sure you're very, very busy here at the centre. So thank you very much. I thought you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I'm an ex-teacher um, and I retired about 10 years ago now. And for a while, I was taking care of my mother-in-law and my mother. And when they passed on, there was sort of a a hole in my life. So I sort of thought, and I had done a lot of volunteering in the past, 
So I thought, right, I'll get back into volunteering. Um, so I went on to one of the volunteering sites and that they asked me um, what my interests were, experience, that sort of thing, what I was looking for. And two um, positions came up. One was education presenter here, and it really appealed to me. So um, I um, came to the information night and then the training. And so I've been here for three years now. Okay, wow, three years. Mm, it's gone so fast. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, because I, I thought, yeah, just having those conversations with you, you had this world of knowledge. So I thought you had been here for, for much longer, but that's, that's great. Okay. <laughs> well, the, when I started, um, I um, was only part of the education team, but I, as time's gone on, I've decided that I wanted to be more involved with the back end as well. Okay. So I'm on the management committee now um, and I've uh, reformed a marketing team because obviously to raise awareness mm -hmm. of, our, of our existence, but also to do some fundraising because we're a not-for-profit charity yeah. um, and we don't get any government funding. Mm -hmm. So all of the money that we need to run this place, we have to find. So Yes. And all the volunteers here or all the people that work here are volunteers, I believe. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, we've yeah. got over 300 volunteers mm -hmm. and we've got uh, 1.6 paid staff. Okay. Yep. So uh, very, very dependent on the volunteers, obviously. Yeah. But with more than 3,000 patients a year, we need every one of those people. So certainly when I started, um, it very soon became apparent how little the public knew mm. about our wildlife. Um, to the extent that I was at a school and there would have been this young boy, eight, nine, ten years old. And when I was presenting the bobtail, when I first um, showed the bobtail, he called out, oh, that's a baby alligator. Oh, no. You know, and it, it just shocked me. It just stopped me in my, my you know, stride because I thought, oh, are you just joking? But uh, we do have so many creatures that are nocturnal. Mm -hmm very small um, and so you just don't see them no you don't and it hasn't been part I know when I was teaching I never had any classes or lessons about our wildlife and I, I can even remember the fir my first year we had to teach and I had a year one class and we had to teach about the pygmies of Africa I'm thinking why why aren't we talking about our own indigenous no, people that's very true you know, and all through my teaching, right up until maybe the last couple of years, there was no information out there for teachers um, in terms of cultural awareness or our um, native fauna and flora, mm -hmm. and it absolutely stunned me. Yeah. So I thought, no, that's very much what I want to do. And a lot of that is just by showing people the animals, mm -hmm. you know, and even animals that are fairly common, like the bobtail. The fact that they can see them up close and you can tell them so much information about just one species. Mm. And they're so unique. You know, our wildlife are just so unique. You know, and, and unless we can help people to understand about our wildlife and to love them, we won't be able to conserve them. And Australia actually has the world record for having lost more of its species, mammalian species than any other country in the world. Yeah. And, you know, and it doesn't seem to be improving. We still have about 100 or so species that are threatened. That's flora and fauna. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be 
a passion on the government level mm. um, to make sure that um, we're doing better. You know, and I mean, you just look around Perth at the moment, the way it's growing. And, you know, apparently there's one football oval cleared every single day. Yeah, it's not good. You know, so where are our animals going to go? And you have a major bushfire and, you know, that horrible one that was in the eastern states, you know, that I, I don't know whether they even know how many animals we lost but it was a tremendous number yeah and that would be the same with every fire even the one that we had up here recently yeah we would have lost a lot then too because i think some of the animals came to this center because the other facility was full and i think some people even taking some of those animals and keeping them on their property and trying to help it was really quite sad hearing very sad yeah and you know, they, like I said, they are just so special. And I mean, people pay good money to come from overseas to see to our see animals. It, definitely, yeah. You know, and yet we're not doing the right thing to protect look after them. them and protect them. Yeah. And mm. like I said, habitat loss and all the introduced species, you know, mm. the, and that's um, weeds as well as um, animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, cats now in particular are doing so much yeah. damage. Is it? mainly the cats or do you also have an issue with dogs the, the wild dogs as much well? less much less so mm. um cats can live all over australia and that's because they don't need to drink they don't need to drink water mm-hmm. they can hydrate on the blood whereas um dogs um need to drink water mm-hmm. so they won't live anywhere where um it's really arid yeah. and they've got to walk too far to find water whereas it's not a problem for cats. I've noticed that because when I have gone camping out in, into those rural areas, I've never ever seen a wild dog, even though there's all these signs that say beware wild dogs. And uh, it's, I never see them. I always see the cats, but I never yeah. see the dogs. And that was one of the things that I learned here at Kenyana is cats are the number one predator of bilbies and whirlies. Very definitely so, yeah. And uh, I mean, the cats, they're born hunters, even the domestic cats. You know, I've, I've got a neighbour with a cat and I keep asking her to keep it inside. Mm. But I chased it out of my yard this uh, this morning. Um, and we've got so many quenders around our house and that's what it's hunting for. Quenders. And you can see, you know, that um, that's what it, they're, they're stalking um, mm. and hunting. And, it's, I mean, the cat's well fed by its owner. Mm. It's just that that's its instinct. It's its instinct, yeah. Dogs don't really have that in them as much as what cats do. And, um, the, and the dogs are easier <laughs> to um, to bait because um, cats won't take um, baits. Um, they, like, they prefer the live food, Yeah. whereas the dogs will take baits. And I don't think a lot of people are aware that their cats can get up to a bit of mischief or if they do I don't know if they really care too much but yeah no it's it's definitely a an issue I find in my neighborhood there's a lot of cats just prowling the streets and I think about all the birds I think about all these and, you know that is something that our government's really got to do something about mm-hmm. you know I know they introduced microchipping and all that sort of thing but you know we we trapped a cat um, one time and took it to the Shire and they said, well, take it back and see if you can find the owner. They weren't interested yeah. in doing anything, mm-hmm. you know, and yet, you know, we know how much damage they do. I mean, they out in the wild, they can eat 30 or more um, animals every single day. 
That's a lot. And now if you think that there's over 20 million cats in Australia, mm -hmm. that's an awful lot of our wildlife that are disappearing every single day. Wow. So do you think that that is the main reason is that we are losing our biodiversity here and well, the, the habitat, natural habitat that we have is from mainly just to do with cats or do oh, you think no, it's a no. multitude of no, things? No, it's a multitude of things. Um, I mean, introduced species of many sorts, cats being the worst, but also, you know, your foxes, your donkeys, your brumbies, your rabbits, um, rats, mice, all of those things, plus the, the, the um, weeds, mm -hmm. you know, so and even things that we've always had in our garden, like lantana, you know, and even lavender now is getting out into the forest. So, and obviously they're going to compete with um, the natural vegetation. And as things disappear, it's altering um, the biodiversity. Mm -hmm. So then, um, and really that the species that are the most successful are those that are the most responsive to change. Yeah. And so like with Quendas now, their population is exploding up here. And that's because obviously they're losing their habitat down the hill because of so much so, clearing. Yeah. Um, and so they're coming up here in huge numbers. And that they don't do a lot of damage or anything like that, but it's just that they're altering the balance. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're getting too many of one species, like ravens, ravens also up here have just exploded in their numbers. And so, you know, and they, of course, will pinch eggs and chicks and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. In fact, they found a nest in my um, garden yesterday. So, um, you know, it... It, like I said, it's it's natural that these things have to eat. And so, you know, they're going to um, source whatever they need. So whether it's, you know, another animal they're going to eat or another bird they're going to eat, it's all just changing the balance. Mm. And I've also noticed those people who are not aware of the damaging impact and the importance of our native species don't get out into nature very often or at all and appreciate it for what it really is. I feel that there's this conception that our outback is just this hot, arid terrain with a bunch of dangerous, poisonous creatures in it. And, and I completely agree with you along with that. I think there's this want of having a domestic family animal, which can make people detach from the risks their pet can have on the natural environment. Well, going back to what I was saying before too, you know, I mean, unless you're out in the bush at night time, you're not going to see many of our species. Um, but also, you know, going back to when I was teaching, you know, we had oodles of books that had hedgehogs and mm. um, um, you know, horses and cats and dogs and that sort of thing in, in the kids' stories books. Mm. But there wasn't um, stories about possums oh, and um, and woilies and fascagales and, you know, all these creatures that you mentioned some of these names to people and they just look at you it's like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to say before I came here, I never knew what a bilby was. Yeah. There were so many creatures that I had just opened my eyes up to and the, the tawny frog mouth. I'm in love with that bird. Oh, <laughs> and of course, when, when, again, you, you present a tawny to an audience and the majority of people think it's an owl. Yeah, and they're in no way related to an owl, mm. you know. But it, I don't. I mean, it has been a, um, a downfall of our education. I think over the years mm. is that there hasn't been enough focus um, on our local species. 
That does seem to be changing a little bit. We've been to a few schools um, recently where, you know, some of the programs and I'm seeing those teachers running now are really, really good. Uh, and, you know, they're really focusing on um, helping the children to learn some of our animals mm -hmm. and why they're so special, why yep. they're so unique mm -hmm. and why they're so necessary. Because growing up, I don't remember learning much about yeah. Our, yeah. our creatures. So. I mean, I was lucky when I was growing up because um, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, lived in the country, mm -hmm. in the wheat belt. Um, and so there was still quite a lot of wildlife around. Mm -hmm. And then um, my, in my first marriage, I married a farmer and we were living on a virgin farm. So it had very little cleared. Yeah. So it was... Um, it was fabulous, you know, that you'd see emus, you'd see um, the, the bush turkeys, echidnas. It still, it still can improve for mm -hmm. sure, um, but it's certainly better than it was when I was teaching. So how did you find Kanyana and why did you decide to become a member? Obviously we know yep. your passion so, for it. But yep. yeah. I came to an open day because they used to have an open day every year. I haven't had one for a couple of years now. But, um, but we used to have one every year. So I came to one of those with my husband and, and a girlfriend um, and was really impressed um, with what they were showing. They had talks, they had animals out. Um, you know, they did mini tours of the enclosures and that sort of thing. So it was interesting from that point of view, but I think where I, my interest in the beginning was, was that oh, here was somewhere you could bring an injured, um, uh, animal or bird to mm -hmm. and so living up here you know you do um, find um, injured um, wildlife at times so I brought up a couple of bobtails and I always loved the response I got here you know and so you'd get talking to the receptionist or whoever came to um, take the animal you know and they always gave you the opportunity that um, when they were rehabilitated that you know they'd ring you and you could take them back and you know uh, release them mm -hmm. so it was exciting and so I wanted to know more about what was happening here yeah and so yeah, for a little while there I didn't do anything about it because I was looking after um, elderly mothers because I had been a volunteer with the SES as well okay um, and I really loved volunteering there mm -hmm. and I was just sort of thinking when I was sort of thinking about going back to volunteering I was sort of thinking you know of all the volunteering roles I've had what have I liked and why? And it was SES. And it was because of the people, the training we got um, and the variety of experiences we had. Mm -hmm. And it's the same here. Yeah, you definitely. know, the people here are amazing and they're probably even more inclusive here because SES, you have to be so fit. Um, whereas here, we can, we've got, we've got people with Alzheimer's with their support workers, people in wheelchairs, mm -hmm. um, with all sorts of disabilities. Um, and they find a, a good place here, you know, it's, it's social, um, it's, um, it gives them something to think about other than, you know, their infirmities or whatever it is that might occupy their um, minds. So, you know, but I think even for all of us, um, because a lot of us, of course, are retirees as well. So it just gives us um, the social life because I organise social events every month. Mm -hmm. 
So we're actually doing the Swan Valley Delights Tour tomorrow. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Swan Valley. Yeah, so we've got the community bus we're borrowing from the city of Kalamunda tomorrow. So we'll be able to have a drink and not have to worry about driving. Maybe two. <laughs> Maybe with a driver, yes. Yes. So, you know, even um, June Butcher, who was the founder of Kenyana, she is stunned by how big this organisation has become because she started it off more than 40 years ago just by finding a galah on the side of the road. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and you know, from there it's just, you know, so we're open every day of the year now um, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. to accept patients. So, yeah, so we've, we, and we do brilliant stuff here, you know, apart from the rehabilitation and we've had some real successes because a bobtail flew about 20 years ago um, nobody knew what it was, how to deal with it. Um, and so, you know, we are um, the leaders in uh, rehabilitating uh, bobtails with the flu. Um, we have nearly a 90% success rate now okay. um, with bobtails that come in because um, it's a highly contagious um, uh, illness for them. Um, and if they stay out in the wild, they will um, die. Uh, do you know how the flu came about? Always been there, but okay. it's just become more obvious um, as we see more and more of these animals um, around. You know, again because they're losing habitat elsewhere, they're moving into areas like the hills, mm -hmm. and so we're seeing more. Um, but we also are more knowledgeable now too, so that we can identify a, a sick bobtail <laughs> as soon as we see one. So you know, it can be brought to a place like us um, and with a bit of good luck and <laughs> good nursing, etc., cetera, um, they're rehabilitated. How important is their livelihood? All of the creatures on this planet have been put there for a reason and they all work together in some way or another. And that's why I was sort of saying earlier, if we're starting to get large numbers of some things and reduced numbers in others, it's got to affect the balance. Oh, absolutely. So even just talking about the woilies that you mentioned earlier, um, I read a paper um, 12 months or so ago um, that was suggesting that the decline in numbers of the woily was contributing to um, the demise of our Jewett forests because um, their poop and the way they're spreading the fungi, because that's their main um, dietary requirement, mm -hmm. um, um, it's necessary to obviously spread the, the spores for the fungi, um, but also the diggers. So they're foraging. Yeah, and so they're digging up the soil, mm -hmm. um, about five to seven tonnes a year, each animal will turn mm -hmm. over. So it's opening the ground up for the rain to get to the roots of the plants. Mm -hmm. But it's the poop and uh, and just incorporating all that humus into the um, into the soil uh, means that it's all virtually essential to the germination and development of the yep, seedlings. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So you know, the boilies do seem to be coming back a bit now because we used to have a captive breeding program of them here, um, but that has recently been suspended. But we do have a very successful captive breeding program of um, the bilby. The bilby yep. So it's a national bilby breeding program. Mm -hmm. And we're only one of five places that are breeding the bilbies. And we've had about 150 plus born here. So that's been great. And in fact, we've just got a new 
wild bilby, mm-hmm. which is fantastic for the gene pool. Jean Butcher and her story regarding the establishment of Kenyana, could you elaborate on that? So um, June had grown up in India and she had a real love of wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she married um, her husband, Lloyd, they had a property in Gooseberry Hill. June was a nurse. And so she found this galah uh, one day when she was coming home from work and she could see that it needed help. So she took it home and three weeks later it was rehabilitated and she returned it back to the exact same spot where she found it Mm -hmm. Um, and it flew away. So she knew that, you know, it was okay. Mm -hmm. And in those days, so I'm talking more than 40 years ago, so there were no vets around. There's no wildlife rehabilitation places around. So she got the reputation of being the lady down the road that knew how to fix wildlife. (laughs) So in her first year, she finished up with about 70 patients and um, her house was being overrun. Um, and eventually um, they decided that they had to find new premises. Mm-hmm. Um, so 2010, they moved here into Paxwold. So this is the um, old Girl Guides um, campsite. Mm-hmm. Um, it had been abandoned about five years before just because it's heritage listed buildings. So these buildings are over 70 years old. So there's a lot of upkeep, of course. And I think the girl guides just found it was becoming too, um, too much. So it was just left to go to rack and ruin. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when June first saw it, she loved it. So we got a Lottery West uh, grant and that helped um, to build some of the enclosures and do some of the other work that was needed uh, straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've had some resource companies that have helped us a fair bit too. So this room that we're sitting in at the moment um, was provided by Chevron and uh, our reptile room next door was provided by um, Fortescue Metal, mm-hmm. Metals yep. Group. So, you know, we've had, we've had some good um, sponsorship over the years. It's still really hard work, though, to get, you know, the Mm. money. It's about $350,000 a year to run this place. And it's very hard to get that money. Grants now, too, you know, it's so competitive. You know, there's so many not-for-profits out there now that aren't Mm. getting any kind of government funding. So, you know, if we can get grants, it's great, you know. So how... You had mentioned that there is a lot of competition, but how difficult is it the, the process in getting a grant? Is oh, that... heaps. There's a lot of work involved. Um, paperwork, like you wouldn't believe. And you don't always know either when those grants are going to be made available. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to be scrutinising every place you can think of to find what grants are available. So one's come through today that um, I hadn't even heard of before, but, you know, have a you know, closer look at that and mm. see whether it's something that we can access. Yeah, so it's a lot of work that we need to do all the time and fundraising is very much a part of, you yes. know, what we need to do. We have, you know, some generous don- donors, people that have uh, left money in their wills, which is, wow. and a couple of people have been very generous there as well. So otherwise it's, um, you know, we, we go to markets, shopping centres, um, open days, fates, expos, conventions, anywhere where people ask us to go. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, to raise our profile, but we also have a tin to shake and yeah. <laughs> merchandise to sell and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, we try and get a, a, as much as we can, wherever we can, 
there is scientific research programs here at Kenyana. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? Because there isn't any um, government mon money for wildlife research, mm -hmm. um, places like us, um, and it's really just emerged because we have animals come in and we don't know what's wrong with them. So the bobtail I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. with the flu, um, and there's always something turning up, parasites or whatever. So we team up with Murdoch Vets mm -hmm. um, and we do research projects in conjunction with them. Okay. Um, so there's one that's been ongoing. I'm, I think it might have finished I, and I haven't heard the results. The uh, We've had some bobtails present with like a yellow fungus on their bellies. Okay. So that's part of what they're trying to investigate. You know, what is it? What can be done about it? Is it um, fatal? You know, so we, we don't know. The that's what the research is obviously trying to determine. Okay. And I mean, in terms of research, because I know when a lot of people think, oh, research facility, what are they doing to the animals? Well, basically, all what... we're doing is looking at poop. Okay. <laughs> that's pretty much what we're doing. We've got very sophisticated <laughs> equipment up there in the quarantine centre. With basically, they, the microbiologists up there are looking at poop. Oh, that's great. We're not, we're not <laughs> slicing and dicing. No, 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 and no, 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 no. The Just only food. slicing and dicing that <laughs> happens here is it is part of the education for um, the hospital people. Is after the wildlife have yes. passed away, okay? Then they might um, open them up in the cross necropsy as they call it mm -hmm. um to see um what's inside and you know what might have caused their demise okay but it also helps um because no well we actually do have vet students here um that volunteer here it just helps them to to sort of see you know the anatomy and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. of those animals so yeah. But no, we, we don't deliberately kill okay. anything. <laughs> Definitely not. That's Good. not what we're about. <laughs> I don't think I would have joined WTVG if I knew that. The hospital, how does it work in terms okay, of when yeah, someone comes yeah. in with an animal? Yeah, so there's three stages to rehabilitation, um, three major stages. So um, if somebody brought in um, a sick, injured, displaced or orphaned um, animal or bird, um, they'd take it to the hospital um, reception area and all the information is taken. It's, it's critical that we know where the animal was found and what time of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we also ask the rescuer um, whether they would like to be part of the release once mm -hmm. the, the patient has um, rehabilitated. So from there, the, the um, uh, uh, animal is taken into the treatment room and assess. So it's like in a um, um, A and E, you know, human hospital. Mm -hmm. um, they're triaged. So um, the first look: who is the worst here, etc. Mm -hmm. Who needs to go to the vet? Who needs to be euthanized? Who can go into our hospital straight away? So most of them need to be hydrated, because um, we recommend to all rescuers that they don't feed or try and hydrate any animal that they rescue, mm -hmm. um, because of, partly because of the assessment that's needed. Yep. Um, but also because most people don't know what those creatures need um, for their survival. Um, and so once that's determined, um, the treatment people will do whatever has to be done. So whether they have to go to the vet or whatever. Um, and then those that come into the hospital will go into hot boxes and they'll get all the treatment that 
the vet says that they need. Um, and that's all very strictly recorded, same as in a human hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so we have three shifts a day in the hospital. So each shift has to know what's happened in the previous shift. So everything is recorded. Um, and then once they are well enough, um, they can go into the st stage two, which is what we call our breezeway, where the enclosures are much bigger. Um, they get the fresh air and they get the natural light. So it's starting to get them used to um, being outside again. Mm -hmm. And you know, they're, again, they're still recorded, monitored, um, uh, observed to see whether they're um, recovering, getting better, getting stronger, etc. And then once they determine that um, they're doing well, they'll go up into the pre-release aviary. Now, there's a lot of other things that happen along the way as well, because some animals need 24-hour care. Mm -hmm. And we don't have anyone here um, overnight. Okay. So we have home carers. So our joeys, for example, whether they're kangaroos, quenders, possums, whatever, any joeys, and we'll go to a home carer because okay. they will need feeding all through the night yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got a really fantastic team of home carers. And also once they, the animals are ready to be released, a lot of the birds, for example, we've, we've determined in the pre-release aviary that they can self-feed, that they can fly, that they can nest if necessary, et cetera. But then just not quite ready to mm. take off on their own. Yep. So we have a few people around the place that have got what we call soft release sites. So this is where the homeowner um, still provides food and water but um, leaves the gate open so they okay. can come and go as they please. So they can go out into the wild, but they can come back and get food. Mm -hmm. Now, how long that process takes depends on the species usually. Okay. Because eventually the homeowner will just shut the gate and the animal has to fend for itself then. Right. But, okay. So it can be a very long, pro long process. Why is it so important to release the animal where you found it? because that's its home territory. That's got the food that it knows, it's got the water sources that it knows, and it's possibly got its family, depending on whether it's still there, um, still affiliated with family. I did hear that about magpies, that if you release it in an area which is, it isn't part of its family, they can actually attack oh, yeah, that magpie. Oh yeah, definitely. They're it. really yeah. very territorial. Yeah. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about the residents? Yeah. So we currently have about 50. Um, so we have reptiles in um, a separate room away from the other enclosures. Um, but at the moment, we've got an emu, swamp wallabies, oilies, bilbies, echidnas, carnaby cockatoo, forest red-tailed black cockatoo, barn owl, bushstone curlews, tawny frogmouths, possums. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and and they do become residents because they can't they can no longer go out into their natural yeah. habitat. So it um, they're assessed um, as to their um, suitability for release. Mm -hmm. Some of the wildlife imprint human imprint very very easily, like mm -hmm. tawny frogmouths. They want to be our best friends pretty much straight away. So um, it's very very important that they're handled in a certain way that they're not imprinted, mm -hmm. but occasionally it happens. Now, we've got animals that have come here from airports because of like the reptiles in particular um, being smuggled out. Mm 
mm, and because they don't know where they've come from mm. um we've managed to inherit a few um the um our widgie our emu belonged to he was an egg <laughs> and belonged to an egg uh, an emu farmer um, who went to the Perth Royal Show and Widgie hatched at the show mm -hmm. but his legs were splayed um, and June Butcher happened to be there uh, raising the profile of Kamiana yep. so this the farmer took um, uh, Widgie to June said is there anything you can do to help so she splintered his legs that was over 20 years ago. You wouldn't know that he'd ever had anything wrong with him. But he didn't know that he was an emu either because he'd been hand-raised. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of stories like that. Yeah. The bilbies are, um, because they're part of the captive breeding program, that's why they're here. Mm. Now, they do get translocated to other centres. Mm -hmm. um, so we had one last year, I think, that went to the Monato Zoo in South Australia. Um, so that's that's the whole point to the um, breeding program is that the genes are um, being mixed up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a stud master who you know keeps a track of all the genetics and all that sort okay. of thing. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. And that's why you know I mean that, there's so much that goes on here that fascinates me. So like another part of the program that people don't know about is we're affiliated with an international educators. Environmental Educators Association, who are based in Canada. Um, and every month, before COVID, mm -hmm. every month we would have an overseas um, person come and stay in the ranger's hut here okay. and work in the hospital for about a month, just learning a bit more about our wildlife and, mm -hmm. and fitting in, you know, with um, our environment and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But COVID stopped that now, of course, for the time being anyway. But that'd be great if that started <laughs> up again. Because that, you know, I mean, the last person I met, she was um, from uh, the United States and she absolutely adored it here. You know, she thought it was fantastic. And she was the last one before COVID and she didn't finish her time, yeah. um, but she's saving up to come back, she tells me. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people have mentioned it. I, I do know quite a few people in conservation and they have said that they've done some sort of experience here and they've, they've always recommended that this place is the best the group of people that are here as well amongst everything that you learn here yeah. so it it does word does get around about this place yeah i do feel the majority of the public are not aware of this place which is another reason as to why i started this podcast is to make them aware and get them involved in this area of education especially children most kids these days see our native species on TV and never in the wild, especially such a unique creature like the echidna. Echidnas are still common. Mm. And yet very few people have seen one in the wild. Yeah, I have to admit, that's the first time I've seen an echidna is when I came here. Yeah. And they are adorable. They're just... Oh, they're so much fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've got to tell you a funny story. Can I tell you this story? Yes. <laughs> um, I took an echidna, this teacher, year two teacher, um, she... The only animal she wanted us to bring was an echidna. Mm -hmm. She loved echidnas. And I'm thinking, my gosh, how can I speak for an hour on an echidna? Anyway, no trouble at all. So these year two children were sort of in a semicircle in front of me. And I was just letting Elle, the echidna that I'd taken, just wander around amongst them. Mm -hmm. And one little girl was wearing tights and Elle decided to crawl into her lap. Oh, really? It was a lot, a lot of fun <laughs> trying to disengage her from the tights. <laughs> 
so yeah so there's yeah lots of lovely things another another story that i like to tell is um two years ago um one of the volunteers here had a relative who was in palliative care mm-hmm. it was only a young man and um he was in his last couple of weeks of life um and he really wanted to stroke a southwest carpet python and the volunteer here knew that we had one mm-hmm. so i got asked to take the python up to Kalamunda palliative care and you know i walked into this room which was full of people you know relatives and friends and things that were there took sylvester out of the pouch and just put him on the bed because the the young man was paralyzed from the chest down mm-hmm. but he could still use his arms and he was still talking and that sort of thing so i just put and and like sylvester was about 1.2 meters yeah so i just put him on on peter's body mm-hmm. and oh you should have seen the look on peter's face and anyway that somebody in the family asked if every one of them could put their hand along sylvester with yep. peter and got me to take the photo oh nice moment but he still had a, <laughs> a great sense of humor because he pressed the nurse's bell just to see what the reaction was. Oh. <laughs> so did she scream oh yeah <laughs> So, you know, there's so many fabulous stories. Everyone that works here has got a story to tell, you know. And just knowing the connection that people can actually have, you know, just cheering someone up mm. in the hospital, a snake. Like some people would be like, it's a snake that would never cheer me up. Yeah. But this obviously rocked this guy's world and, you know, made him, you know, love life a little yeah. bit more. And, yeah. Well, it's also like how we have corporate volunteering days. So um, various companies like banks, insurance companies, resource companies, whatever, can come here for a day mm-hmm. um, and just work for us. You know, so they'll do some of the big jobs that's hard for us to get around to mm-hmm. sometimes. So, for example, the Bilby sand needs to be replaced every, about every six months. Um, and that's a huge job, you know, because the sand's about, yeah, you know, it's, and it's quite a big enclosure. Yeah. So, you know, that's all got to be removed and f- fresh stuff put back in. But to watch some of these people um, and the way they're working, it's so much fun. They'll have wheelbarrow races. <laughs> you know, they'll fill up their wheelbarrows with you know some old brows or something that they're taking up to the brows pile. And, mm. you know, they're chasing each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have like our juvenile justice. They, they come here and do corporate work. And, okay. And it's and pre-release people, you know, and it's you can just see that they love being out in the outdoors mm. and they're helping and yeah. It'd be so good for the mind as well, especially being in this corporate environment where it's just work, work, work and your computers and and then stepping back from that and coming into nature. I think that's yeah. really, really healthy for anybody to do. Life has become all about work yeah, these days. It has, yes. So, yeah. I was going to ask that as well with everything that's happened with COVID. Do you find the people coming in has been more or has it taken a bit of a dive um last year and uh, we certainly saw a drop off um we had to close for i think it was six weeks mm-hmm. um so and i think because everywhere people were a bit tentative about getting back to normal again mm-hmm. you know so it did take a while but so we run an information night for new volunteers every month um first wednesday of every month and we found that the numbers dropped off significantly even when we were able to you know fire up again mm-hmm. um and but that's starting to build up again now okay and it's the same as our um, bookings you know they they tailed right off as well um but 
that that's picking up again now. Okay, good. Mm. What is one of the misunderstandings that you find people have when they visit the centre? Well, they really don't know what we do. You know, how um, how expansive our role is. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're not just about taking in animals. We do so much here, as I've sort of said. Mm. And because I sometimes do um, the discovery tours and just what they learn about our wildlife, but also what they can do if they find um, an injured animal or sick animal. So a lot of people uh, I've found over time that they they think they're helping and so they want to keep the animal at home. And now that's actually against the law now. Mm-hmm. Um, any animal's got to be handed into either a vet or a wildlife place within 72 hours. Uh, vets don't charge you if you um, take an animal to them. And then most vets don't know what to do with um, wildlife because mm. that, 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 see, that's another thing we do. We have vet students on site here twice a week, um, second years and fourth years. Murdoch vets have realised that the vets just don't know enough about the wildlife. They know about cats and dogs and horses right, and so domestic forth. Domestic ones, yep. But they can come here and learn about you know, treating um, uh, our wildlife. And and to make that clear, it's only wildlife yeah, yeah, here, yeah. not domestic. No, definitely not. Yeah. In fact, it's forbidden to bring um, dogs or cats here. Because imagine the stress yeah. would definitely yeah. impact yeah. the wildlife. Yeah. Um, and that was another thing I really liked about the hospital as well there's a a sensor so if people are talking too loud within oh, the yes, room yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, get the red yeah, light yeah. It, it never crossed my mind when I first came and, and did a walkthrough to think that noise would affect an, an animal so much and I, I think quite a few people had said that it is the number one reason why some of them do die yeah. is from noise and stress. Noise. Well, it's stress more importantly because um, obviously they, they're wild creatures and when they come here, they, they've got something wrong with them. So they're already low, mm-hmm. um, but they see us as predators. Yep. You know, so that's an additional stress. So then if there's noise and so forth, then, you know, that's just loading up their stress levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's very important that people are quiet. And uh, so all of the um, wildlife that finish up in the hospital are never handled with your hands. It's always gloves and towels um, so that they're not, uh, you're not putting your, your own sweat and oil and yes. stuff on those animals. Mm-hmm. And how can people help support Kenyana? Lots of ways. Um, come and volunteer. <laughs> um donations it's just spreading the word you know if they've heard something good about us then let other people know mm-hmm. work through social media or you know wherever you meet um there is so much good work that's done here mm-hmm. and people i think need to know <laughs> they do they do need to know the, the training courses as well oh that- yes and that, that's actually increased mm-hmm. this year um so we're offering our training courses now um to resource companies, mm-hmm. so that's fauna first aid, um, vets, um, vet nurses, um, wildlife rangers, anybody that's dealing with wildlife, mm-hmm. um, they can do first aid, fauna first aid here. Um, plus there's many, many other um, training courses as well. Some of them just specifically for our volunteers, mm-hmm. but some that we offer 
um, out in the community as well. And coming in for tours as well. Oh, so, yeah. 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 The yeah. tours are great. So we have the discovery tours, um, which are the daytime tours and nocturnal tours and the meet and greets. Um, and of course, any group can book uh, their group to come in for a couple of hours as well. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of groups from, you know, two year olds to 100 year olds that come here and we do the best we can to um, educate them and, and give them a good time. Yeah, great. And where can the people find you? We have a website. Um, so that's kenyanawildlife.org.au. And we've got a Facebook social media page. We're in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> we still have phone books. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's probably, and word of mouth, I mean, that's where we get most of our business. You know, a lot of the, um, especially the early childhood places, they have associations of their own and uh, we're registered with a lot of them. So they find out about what we can offer the schools and out-of-school care and, you mm -hmm. know, kindies and all that sort of things the kinds of things we do yeah okay great and if you do want to head out to the kenyana rehabilitation center the address 120 gilcrest road les Murdy, west australia and it is in such a great location as well so if you do decide to come out here and even go for a bit of a hike and i think the perth observatory isn't far it's just down right. the road so it's just a beautiful area in general the valley and yeah mm. it's very peaceful out here so and if you do decide to join and meet the people here they are all very passionate lovely people that are very knowledgeable and so I would like to thank you thank for your you. time Christine I thank really you. appreciate thank you for it. asking me I trust you received some key information on understanding Australia's unique native animals and the rehabilitation facility that supports the educational growth and care for endangered wildlife. So please remember, if you intend on owning a cat, think about the impact it could have on the environment. And if you already have one, please be considerate and take the appropriate measures to keeping them away from native creatures. This is Esther signing out with an open heart, an open mind, living life and keeping free. Thanks for listening in.